Hi everyone, I'm Tavid Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that explores some of the challenges and opportunities leaders face in today's increasingly complex, fast-paced, and interconnected global market. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavid Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that provides both virtual and in-person leadership keynotes, corporate trainings, and consulting services that will help you to improve the way you lead. To learn more about our services and what some of our clients have had to say about our work, visit our company's website at tavinasir.com. And while you're there, check out my award-winning internationally acclaimed leadership blog as well. So you may remember how I pointed out this summer marks the 10th year that I've been doing the Leadership Biz Cafe podcast. Although I didn't plan anything to mark this milestone, it's already been an incredible year as a few episodes back I got to speak to someone on my list of dream guests I'd love to have my podcast. In that case, I'm referring to none other than Tom Peters. Well, now I get to scratch another name off that list as I now get to welcome renowned leadership researcher and author Jim Kuzes to my podcast. If you're not familiar with Jim, Allow me to share a brief overview of Jim's pedigree. Jim is the Dean's Executive Fellow of Leadership at the Levy School of Business at Santa Clara University. Prior to this, he served as President, CEO, and Chairman of the Tom Peters Company, something I just learned in talking with Jim while prepping for this show, and which goes to also show what a small world this is. Jim has been recognized several times as being one of the top 30 global gurus in leadership. He was named for four years in a row as HR Magazine's most influential international thinker. And the Wall Street Journal cited Jim as one of the 12 best executive educators in the US. And if that wasn't enough, Jim is also the co-author of over 30 books on leadership, including the international best-selling book, The Leadership Challenge. All of which is to say that I'm a big fan of this man's work. For today's episode, though, I'm going to ask Jim about his latest book, Everyday People, Extraordinary Leadership, and what insights he's gleaned from his research for how those who lead without a title can truly empower others and make a difference through their efforts. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, Tanvir. Thank you so much. Before we get started, I have to tell you, Jim, what an absolute delight it is to have you on my podcast. We first connected almost a decade ago, and you've been so gracious and supportive. As an example, your co-author, Barry Posner, and you wrote a piece for my leadership blog as part of a month-long event to celebrate the release of my first leadership book. So it's truly a genuine pleasure to finally have this chance to sit down and talk about your research into leadership and how we can improve our craft. Well, it's a pleasure to be talking with you, and uh, I will pass that news on to Barry next when I talk with him. I'll I'll be seeing him shortly. Great. I would really appreciate that, Jim. Yeah, we're still friends after all these years of working together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not surprised at all, judging from the work and how much you both through your work have inspired people to not only aim for the best, but to see the best in others. And for our discussion today, I'd love to talk about your latest book, Everyday People, Extraordinary Leadership. And 
What I love about this book is how right from the start, you point out how this book is meant for those who lead without a formal title or role. It's for those individuals who people naturally look to for insight and guidance on how to achieve their goals and be successful. And it reinforces something I've shared in my keynotes and writings on leadership, and that is that you don't have to wait to get a title to step up and lead others as you can still be that lens that sharpens the collective focus of why we do what we do, how we can create genuine value and find meaning in what we do. So through your research, you've come up with what you call the five practices of exemplary leadership. Before we get into these five practices, Jim, I was wondering if you could share what your research revealed that helped you establish these five practices as being the key to extraordinary leadership. Andrew, I'd be delighted. And, and, and thanks again for the opportunity to share this. Let me tell you the backstory. I don't often go this far back in history, but uh, since you have recently talked with my colleague, Tom Peters, I thought I'd give you a little bit more background. Uh, in 1981, I joined Santa Clara University in met my co-author Barry Posner there. And uh, I was the director of the Executive Development Center. And uh, Barry was one of the key faculty working with graduates of Santa Clara University who were coming back for a refresher or executives in the local Silicon Valley community, which was mostly the community we served at the time. And uh, we found that we had a common interest in values and culture. And we were doing a series on a corporate culture it was a very uh, popular topic at the time and a very relevant topic at the time. And one of the people that we asked to come and speak was Tom Peters. Tom, before In Search of Excellence was published, came to speak at Santa Clara. And uh, he was very, very well received. So we scheduled him again before his fee went through the roof. <laughs> and we got him to come back again. And uh, Barry and I were going to do day two after Tom did day one of a two-day seminar on corporate culture. And Tom was going to speak on excellent companies, which was the theme of, of In Search of Excellence. So Barry and I decided we'd speak on excellent managers. Now, we didn't have a book and we hadn't done the research yet, but we had this notion that there were a lot more leaders in the world other than the CEOs of excellent companies. And while we were in sync with Tom's major message, when it came to leadership, we wanted to broaden the conversation to include at least middle-level and frontline managers inside organizations. And as you know, at the time, back in the 80s, most of the books people were leading on leadership, reading on leadership were based on the writings of CEOs or were about CEOs or senior executives or political figures or famous people. So we decided that we would focus in in our conversation on excellent managers. That was the topic at the time. And we asked the participants if they would please write a story before they came to this one day, the second day that Barry and I did about their personal best leadership experiences. That was the very first time that we did that. And what we discovered when these about 60 middle-level, director-level, and some CEOs from 
from the local companies that we were serving from financial sector, from uh, social services, from governmental agencies, healthcare, and so on, and high tech in particular. They wrote stories about themselves when they were at their very best as leaders. And we had people break into groups. They came back and they wrote the, their findings from their conversations with each other in small groups about their personal best leadership experiences. They summarized the you know, five to seven key messages that emerged from kind of the common themes that came out during that conversation. Posted them on the hall in Kenna Hall at Santa Clara University. And as we did a gallery walk down the hallway, looking at different groups feedback, there were about 10 or so different groups that uh, were discussing this. We noticed that there were some messages that appeared on all or most of the 10 uh, report outs from these groups. That was our aha moment, Tanvir. That was the moment we said, gee, there must be something here that's in common about when leaders are at their personal best. So we took that methodology and that methodology became the way in which we explored this further. And uh, initially there were, I think, seven practices. And then when we started doing some more empirical testing, uh, we found that uh, when you did a factor analysis, there were about five. And so we then further explored those five and they became the five practices of exemplary leadership, which we still write about today. So that's a, a, a long way of getting from, from the mid 80s to today when we're still asking people to write their personal best and talking about the five practices. So, Jim, I'd love to delve a bit deeper into these five practices of exemplary leadership, starting with that first one, model the way. In this chapter, you write, when you lead by example, when your actions are consistent with your words and your espoused values, then people will consider you credible. Now, on the surface, I think we can all understand and relate with this and agree with this statement. And yet at the same time, I think all of us can share more than a handful of examples of leaders we know who say one thing, but do another, who say, this is one of their values, this is what they stand for, but then go on to do something that's in clear conflict with that espoused value. So how do we avoid this and lose any credibility we might have earned, especially if we're talking about people who aren't leaders because others chose to follow them and not because they're obligated to because of the title we have. Let's go back to just the phrase that you said about leading by example. When we asked people and, and connected that with credibility in the quote you read, another thing we found in our research was we asked, we asked constituents those who were direct reports or those who were uh, constituents in other ways, peers that worked with a leader uh, or clients or customers, what it was that they looked for in a leader, someone whose direction they would willingly follow. What they told us was that the first attribute of a leader was honesty. That was the first thing they looked for in a leader, someone whose direction they would willingly follow. And Tanvir of over the past 35 plus years, we've been administering this uh, survey, which we call Characteristics of an Admired Leader. Uh, we have found that the number one attribute remains, even just last week when I looked at some new data 
for the last 10, for the last year is honesty. People want a leader who is honest. The second attribute that also has maintained its consistency that people look for is competence. That is, they look for a leader who can get things done. So we want someone we can trust, someone who we believe is telling us the truth, and someone who is able to execute. And therein lies one of the reasons why it's challenging for people to set the example. Uh, And one of the solutions to making sure that you can set an example. Uh, But the bottom line is credibility is the foundation of leadership. And what, if you ask people, what is credibility behaviorally? What they'll tell you is that it is do what you say you will do. DWYSYWYD, D-W-Y-S-Y-W-D for short. And so there are two key components to this. One is that you have to have something to say. You have to have a set of values and beliefs that you are basing your actions on and then you act accordingly. So someone who doesn't have a clear set of values and beliefs can ha, would have a difficult time being credible in the sense that they're all over the map if they, uh, they just act without any people knowing, well, why are you doing what you're doing? Why is cooperation or collaboration or teamwork important to you? You know, you're, you'll keep talking about team, 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 but you, you know, we didn't know that that was important to you. I thought we were a competitive organization. You're supposed to compete, compete, compete. Uh, you'll have to help me out with that. So being clear about your values and beliefs is, is, is essential to being credible. And of course, you have to follow through, putting it into practice. And going back to that data on what we look for and admire in a leader, if you don't have the skills or abilities to follow through, you may be really wanting to set a good example, but you're failing because you're failing to be consistent because you don't have the skills and ability. Let me just give you one example. Let's say you're a a team that believes in quality and that's a a shared value of everyone. We want to have a a produce quality service, quality product. Uh, And so you demand quality from people in the organization, but you have not trained anyone in TQC. You haven't given anyone the skills and abilities to follow through on that commitment you're making to yourself and to your customers. And so competence is a key reason why we do or do not uh, demonstrate the values that we espouse. Uh, That's just one illustration. You know, what's interesting as I was listening to you describe this idea of credibility and how it ties into this practice of model the way it sets up really well. The second practice of aspire a shared vision, because what we're looking at here now is, okay, so we understand what you represent, what you're about, what matters to you. And we see you have the competencies to fulfill that idea. But now it's kind of like, what is it that you're really after? And why would I want to be a part of it? What is it that we're hoping to achieve that's connected to what it is that you stand for and what you show a competency towards creating? So I think it's a great place for us to delve into this second practice, Aspire Shared Vision. And I really like how you describe the way we should be thinking of vision, that visions are about hope, dreams, and aspirations. They're declarations of a strong desire to achieve something ambitious. They're expressions of optimism. 
And what's interesting about this from your research is that this is far from a daunting challenge because while your vision should be something grand in size and scale, how you go about inspiring people to get on board and be a part of that ambitious plan is grounded in some very tangible, accessible behaviors, which I think some people could see we're building on what we just discussed in the context of the previous practice of Model the Way. Yeah, well, you point out something that is a strong connection between both Model the Way and Inspire Shared Vision, and that is the word shared. Leaders often think that if I'm clear about my values and my vision, then I can, in a sense, impose them on you, then that you will be willing to follow me because I'm very clear about my values and very clear about the vision of the future that I want. The problem is it might not be shared by your constituents or enough of your constituents that they that they want to willingly follow you. And so I think that's a key element that's often missed by leaders. They assume that they can be clear about their values and tell people what they are, clear about their vision of the future, tell people what it is, and they expect people to follow because I'm being consistent with my messages. Why aren't you? Well, largely because it's not shared. So it's really important that leaders understand that it's not just about your values and your beliefs. It is about your constituents sharing a similar set of beliefs or ones that resonate with what you say. So let me give you an, a, kind of a, a visual image here of uh, how we might think about this in terms of a vision and a shared vision. If I were to take a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, Tanvir, and dump it on a table in front of you and say, okay, Tanvir, put it together. What is the first thing that you want from me? Well, I'd want to know why you want me to put it together. And I think I'd like to know what the ultimate picture will create. Exactly. So people want to know why, why is this important? And what's it going to look like when we're done? That is the way we react when we're inside organizations doing work. We give employees, or in the case of our newest book, Everyday People Extraordinary Leadership, we give those volunteers that we're working with uh, or colleagues at work, our peers, a piece of a puzzle called a job or a task. And we say, put it together. And we never show them the box top. We never show them the final picture of what it's supposed to look like. I mean, uh, I, I love jigsaw puzzles and uh, love to be, you know, wherever I might find one on a table somewhere, I always go up to it and see if I can put one more piece in. But there's the box top sitting there that shows me what it's supposed to look like when it's over. I wouldn't be engaged in that task uh, as excitedly and, deter and with determination to help at least contribute if I couldn't see what it was supposed to look like when it was over. Leaders need to show people that box top and then individuals decide, is this a future I can see myself in? If a leader can't articulate a vision of the future in which people can see themselves, they don't wanna follow. They don't wanna be engaged at least willingly. So what does that require then of leaders to do? What must leaders do in order to be able to help people see that there is a connection between the vision that the leader is articulating 
and the future, the ideal image of the future that they are seeking. Uh, that requires, as a colleague of mine once said, growing big ears and eyes. It means listening to our constituents and what it is that, what are their hopes, dreams, and aspirations? What are their values and beliefs? And how do they connect with the future that uh, as a team, as a company, as an organization, as a group of people working together in a community, what is it that we collectively see for the future? How do these two things connect, yours and ours? Now that we've discussed how we have to make sure we're creating this space for our employees to feel a part of this vision, that they understand what we're trying to create here, what's the end goal and what's my part in it, well, then the next part of that puzzle becomes then how they go about contributing to it. And I certainly think when I was reading this next practice of exemplary leadership, how much it kind of reflects the challenges we've had to deal with over the past 12 months in terms of challenging our assumptions and the status quo in terms of how we approach work. And there is actually a wonderful statement you make early in the book about this third practice, which is called challenge the process. You write, challenge is the crucible for greatness. It provides the context which adversity and vision interact to provide the creation of something new. And Without question, we've seen that manifest itself over the past year, not just in terms of disrupting how we view work in terms of when and where, but also in terms of challenging societal processes and systems which perpetuate racial inequalities. So in terms of this practice, though, I'd like to focus on the ideas you write around experimentation and taking risks. Again, looking back on the past 12 months, all of us were experimenting and trying to figure out not just how to get our work done, but how to move forward with our goals. And we've seen many advances and improvements being made because we had to experiment and take risks to not just wait out the storm, but to keep pressing ahead with what we want to achieve. So building off what we've been discussing where, okay, now we're creating this space where our employees are participants, they're contributors to creating that shared vision. In terms of this next one of challenge process, how do we take those harder lessons from these past 12 months where leaders have really had to recognize, I have to figure out what's the best way for my employees to work as opposed to the way I prefer them working, and then create an environment with this new understanding where we're willing to be as bold as we had to be in finding our way through this pandemic? It's a great question. And I had an interesting conversation with another colleague of mine uh, and the way he way he phrased this really was kind of also one of those aha you just said it exactly how i'd like it to be said and his name is steve coates and steve and i've been working together for 30 years and he was talking about clients who were struggling with this question of you know post-pandemic you know how will the workplace be and he said uh you know it's it's as if they want to go back to 2019 and i said whoa that's exactly the point that that if we're if we say we need to get back to normal we need to get back notice the word back not ahead back we need to go people are yearning to go backwards to normality what they understand was normality and yes there's elements of that we all want we want to be with family we want to be with friends we want to be with colleagues we want to have the opportunity to go places get on planes go uh, be intimate with others 
uh, our friends and family. Yes, all of those we want, but the context has changed completely globally. And if we, 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 we can't go back to 2019, we cannot turn the clock back. We cannot go back. So my prediction, and I think my good friend, Tom Peters would also agree with this, that organizations which focus on going back will be less successful than those who say, what is the current context? What are the issues we're facing right now? And who's doing that really well? Who's addressing that in ways that we can learn from? Let's apply the principle of searching for opportunities, looking outward for ideas, and let's, let, let's do a little shopping around and see who else is engaged in some of these same struggles and what they're learning, what they've tried. We are engaged in one big global experiment right now. And from my way of looking at the world these days, we are operating on hypotheses. We don't know, for example, Tanvir, and, I, I, and you and I work virtually and have for a long time, but, but a lot of people haven't. You know, will the workplace be totally virtual? Will it be hybrid? Will it be everybody's got to go back to work in a physical setting? Well, that's that's one way of looking about it. The other way is just to say, these are questions we ought to be asking ourselves. Let's set up little experiments. Let's try this and see. Let's talk to people about what's been good about virtual, what's been really awful about virtual, and is there some way we can uh, problem solve around this and find some ways for people to be uh in person part of the time potentially, or you know, what jobs really require that and what jobs don't? Uh, and what are the most appropriate times for us to be together? And maybe there are times when we don't need to be. So rather than going into this as a leader with an answer, what we need to go into this next few months as we begin to ease our way forward into new ways of working, Let's ask some critical questions and begin to do little experiments, uh, and then we learn from them. So that's how we can apply this notion of searching for opportunities and then experimenting and taking risks by just treating these as a, like a scientist would treat them and have a hypothesis about what might work and see if it does and learn from the failures and from the successes. Absolutely agree. And I think you've set up a perfect segue for us to discuss the fourth practice here, Jim, the fourth practice being enable others to act. In particular, the point you make here in this chapter that what this requires is a focus on strengthening others by making them feel powerful. For sure, if people are going to have the ability to experiment, test, and yes, fail, they need to feel powerful in, in being able to do it, to have the confidence to say, I want to figure this out because this could be an area where I can continue to add even greater value to our organization and help us achieve that shared vision that we talked about at the beginning. And again, here's another great quote you share here about this notion of making our employees feel powerful that you write how when you make other people feel powerful in tangible and or intangible ways, you are demonstrating profound trust in and respect for their abilities. And I absolutely love, again, this conversation we're having about testing and experimenting. This is why we're going to allow our employees to do that because we have that trust and respect in and for their abilities. And I love this idea because it mirrors something I share in some of my keynotes on leadership and developing and empowering employees, which is that we need to recognize our strengths are not what we're good at. Rather, it's the things that strengthen us. 
that make us feel like we're adding value, we're making a difference. And I also really enjoy how in this chapter you point out that power should not be viewed from a scarcity mindset, that if you have more power, then I have less. Rather, it's about recognizing we each have our own source of power that's derived from our skills, our talents, our experiences, and our own unique viewpoint and outlook, and that if we can encourage and support people to share it, we're all the better for it. So, Jim, I would absolutely love to hear what your research has revealed as some measures we can take to strengthen others by making them feel their own sense of power so we can, in fact, continue to create this environment where people are willing to experiment, to test, and to find those opportunities where they can help their organization fulfill that larger vision that we set out for them to create with us. Yeah, that I think that's the important thing. It is a mindset, and leaders with the mindset of a scientist, someone who says, we're engaged in an important experiment here. We, we are engaged in, in trying some new ways of working. Let's bring with us those that have really worked in the past and have, have been working currently. But let's that's kind of like going on a trip. You know, you don't take your whole house with you when you go on a trip you know, to some new destination. You leave some things behind. You take what's essential. What is essential that we want to continue to take with us on this journey forward? What can we leave behind that really isn't essential? And what would we like to take with us? But, you know, it really needs some modification. Uh, you know, if you take the, the issues of, of uh, inclusion, diversity, and equity, you know, clearly there are some things that have worked in the past. We're in a better place than we were 50 years ago. But, man, there are some things that haven't been working at all. And we need to take a look at how, you know, how we can do something different. Let's try some things to try to advance how we're dealing with that issue, how we can make organizations more equitable, more inclusive, and more diverse. And then, you know, what, what, do we, what, what else do we need to do that we haven't done in the past or in the currently that would help advance this forward? And so I think with that mindset of, it, of, of searching for new ways and then doing some experiments to test these ideas, which are risky, and we're going to fail some of the time, looking at them as learning experiences then to help us move, uh, help move us forward. And that's how the inspire model and challenge connect with each other, because you're, you're trying to be true to your values and beliefs. More than likely, majority of those, that, that vision that you aspire to achieve hasn't changed all that significantly. You still want many of the same things you wanted previously. And you have a set of values that tends to remain relatively stable. But we have a new challenge. What, what, what are ways of, that we can work together now to get to that future that we hope for and we desire, but we have to be doing some new and different things? Jim, I love how our discussion has been setting up the fifth and final practical example of leadership encourages the heart as almost the punchline to our conversation, because I think it's becoming clear in discussing these four other practices, how leadership really is about nurturing relationships with those who choose to follow you because they see your focus is on helping everyone to succeed. And again, there's not surprisingly, there's some parallels 
between your work and mine is for this practice, you talk about the importance of fostering a spirit of community. And I think it's become clear to everyone just how important it is, not just to our productivity and ability to work, but to our overall mental well-being to feel a connection to those around us. In fact, I strongly believe that one of the reasons we've seen over the last few years this rise in hate crimes and acrimony directed towards members of the black, indigenous, Jewish, Muslim, and more recently the Asian communities is because of perceived lack of relatedness brought forth by emphasizing a sense of otherness instead of embracing the kaleidoscope of our collective humanity. And of course, with a growing acceptance of shifting towards a hybrid work environment where you'll have some employees working at times from home and other times in the office, while others opt to work exclusively from home and maybe not only coming to the office for the occasional in-person team meetings, the natural question that's going to come up and had come up prior to the pandemic when faced with remote working is how do we ensure we're creating the spirit of community? What measures, Jim, should we employ looking ahead to make sure we're creating the spirit of community, not just for those in the office, but also for those who will be working from home as well? There's a lot there, isn't there? <laughs> yes, there is. Uh, it is. It, you know, we, we, I think we've uh, realized globally and, you know, I, I live in California uh, uh, in the United States that uh, our individual countries are, may not be as united and certainly globally we are not, there is not a, a sense of community. Uh, I, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, that's how I started down this path where I am today. Uh, and uh, when I was growing up, we had people live in our home for up to a year as exchange students who were from many different backgrounds, uh, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, different faiths, uh, Hindu, and uh, different uh, ethnic groups, different nationalities. And I'm, I just feel very fortunate, Tanvir, that during my life, I had the opportunity to be raised by parents who showed an appreciation for many different cultures and, and uh, many different points of view. Not that we always agreed with each other. <laughs> We'd have some very, very uh, heated conversations over the dinner table. Uh, but uh, yet at the end of the day, you know, we'd all go to sleep knowing that we loved each other even though we weren't direct family. And so it, it's that kind of experience that I had that makes me sad to see that we have lost our way a bit, I think. And we are not, we're not hearing the language from our leaders that would want us to see the common humanity in all of us. Let me tell you a little experiment, I think, that may answer part of your question and one way in which leaders can promote this sense of, of community and a sense of commonality and spirit uh, that, that you're talking about. There was a there's been a, a number of research experiments done using the uh, prisoner's dilemma. I'm sure you're familiar with that game. It's a, it's a game that's used in a lot of experiments on negotiation and cooperation. And uh, a couple of experimenters decided that they would do something different with this. They would look at the effect of language and how they framed the task on people playing this game. 
Now, for those unfamiliar with Prisoner's Dilemma, Prisoner's Dilemma is, is, a, is a game in which uh, you either cooperate or don't cooperate. And there are consequences for cooperating and not cooperating. Uh, and what they found was that if they changed the name of the game, people would behave differently. They called it not the prisoner's dilemma. They called it, they, they divided the group in half, randomly assigned participants to the Wall Street game or the community game. Wall Street game, community game. Played the same game. And what the researchers were looking at was not sort of the end result of, of the who won, but how many people co made cooperative moves and what percentage made competitive moves. Guess which group made more cooperative moves? Wild guess, the community won. Yeah, 70%, <laughs> about 70, 75% of initial moves and subsequent moves among those who played the community game were cooperative. 30% among those who were playing the Wall Street game made initial cooperative moves. And after that, it pretty much went, went down to all non-cooperative moves. So think about that for a minute. Let's just pause and think about that. It had nothing to do with the rules of the game. Nothing. It was the same game they were all playing. What was different was the community game. My advice to leaders, if you want to create a spirit of community, is to watch your language. Pay attention to the words you're using. You may not think they make much difference, but they do. You may think that calling it the China virus has no impact whatsoever and that you're being completely accurate in your description. You are not being completely understanding if you're doing that of your community and your constituents and the impact might have on them. What language do we need to use to create a spirit of community that's different than the language we're using right now? I think that's, that's probably the most critical message I could get across in this discussion of creating a spirit of community. You can promote that in a number of different ways. One way is to find ways to utilize technology if you can't be together, or if people choose to use a hybrid model of working, where you can make connections using technology such as Zoom calls or uh, other ways in which people can connect virtually that help them to see each other and to connect with each other. And don't always make them about work. You know, have a virtual cocktail party, not just a virtual work meeting, in which the only thing people talk about is uh, what they're grateful for or how their day went or how their kids are doing, or, uh, you know, be mindful that uh, not everyone is doing as well as the, another. And are there people in particular that you need to pay even more attention to so that you can provide them with some social support? Tell stories about how other individuals are doing things that are in the, in the service of the values and the vision of the organization. Tell those stories so people see that their colleagues, some of their colleagues are living these out. You know, get on the balcony and bang some pots, if, sing, you know, do, do what's necessary to express that sense of community 
find creative ways in which you can do it, uh, even with the limitations that we face. But number one, watch your language. So, Jim, now that we've explored these five practices of exemplary leadership, I'd like to wrap up our discussion with a shift towards the future, kind of what we've already been touching a little bit on. And given how we've been kind of seeing that there is hopefully a concrete change in outlook and understanding about leadership and why people should follow you, I'm wondering what you see as being the opportunities that are now accessible and open to all leaders, both to those with a title and those without to embrace and build on these five practices of exemplary leadership as we finally start to make this shift from focusing solely on the work in terms of when and where we work to a more inclusive focus on the people we have the responsibility to lead. Well, I think the, the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown and the social isolation that people have felt has, has highlighted a few things that uh, I think are principles or or perhaps hypotheses that we can all operate on as we go forward and begin to test and, and, and look at. Uh, what you just pointed out uh, really shows one of those, which, has, which is that there, there is a desire among people who feel less uh, included in our societies that they want to be more involved than they are. And I, I look at that as a positive. Why are people looking at that as a negative? Why are we looking at that as something wrong? They want to be more involved. They want to be more engaged. They want to be treated as equals. Let's, let's play with that notion. Let's work with, not play with. Let's, let's take that seriously. Let's, let's look at how we can utilize that, that desire people have to feel more included, to feel that the place that they live and work is more equitable. Let's, let's find ways to make that happen. Uh, that's one thing that came out of this pandemic that was revealed to us in, in some ways uh, that uh, were expected and, and unexpected. And we need to take that seriously and, and begin to address it. Another thing that organizations realized during this pandemic is that uh, challenge is opportunity. I mean, look at what happened with the, with the vaccine. The vaccines, the various vaccines got produ developed, produced, and distributed in under a year. That's unheard of. Competitors cooperated because they saw an urgent need. How can we take that? sense of looking at all of what's happening around us, whether it's uh, the inequities we, we experience in society, uh, whether it's the uh, need for new ways of working uh, together around public health uh, and new ways of working inside organizations or outside organizations. Let's take these as opportunities to do some wonderful experiments that will reveal new ways that uh, will inevitably make us more productive and more engaged in the work that we do. Uh, and it's also demonstrated that this can happen more quickly than I thought we did. And I think finally, another important principle or observation that's come out of this is people really need social support. If we look at what's happening in education and how we're hearing how many kids 
have become disengaged or are having mental health issues and how many people that work similarly. We know that people need each other and we need social support. Given the limitations right now that we're facing uh, with the workplace and, uh, and some people preferring not to return, some people needing to return, uh, but being concerned about it, and some people who are e eager to get out there and work together, regardless of, uh, of how it is that we work together, how can we use whatever technologies we have in order to help people feel more supported by other people and by their leaders. Jim, I have to tell you, what a thrill it's been to finally talk in person with you, albeit virtually, about leadership and your research. Your work into demystifying the true nature of leadership has influenced so many, myself included. In fact, I have a message you sent me over seven years ago complimenting me about the work I do in this leadership field pinned on my office message board. So I just want to thank you for not only coming on my podcast and sharing your insights, but also for all you do as you sign your messages to love them and lead them. Tanvir, thank you very much. I really appreciate the extraordinary work you do. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and, and I'm delighted. And I hope we can do this again down the road. Oh, absolutely. You can count on me wanting to have you on the show, especially when that seventh edition of the Leadership Challenge comes out. I would absolutely love to have even Barry as well on here for us <laughs> uh, for an episode of that, because I think that would be fascinating. In fact, I might be the one sitting on the other table listening to you two <laughs> eavesdropping in on the conversation. That would be great. I'd love it, too. As I said at the start of this episode, although this year marks the 10th year of my hosting this podcast, I didn't have anything in mind to celebrate this achievement. But I have to say, being able to finally speak with Jim Cousins about leadership is a pretty spectacular way to commemorate this milestone. And I can't wait to speak with Jim again, along with Barry Posner, when the seventh edition of their seminal work, The Leadership Challenge, comes out. Now that's going to be a fascinating conversation, to be sure. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about Jim and Barry's latest book, Everyday People, Extraordinary Leadership, and his work in the leadership space, check out the show notes for this episode at tavernasir.com slash LBC. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, brought to you by Tavernasir Leadership. Now, if you enjoyed learning the insights I've discussed here or in other episodes of my leadership podcast, and you'd be interested in having me share them with your organization, I'd like to invite you to fill out the contact form on our website at tavernasir.com so we can start that discussion. You can also check out my speaking page on our company website to learn more about my speaking services and the kinds of topics I cover both in keynotes and in workshops. In the meantime, I'd like to encourage you to share this or other episodes of my podcast with your colleagues and employees. The easiest way to do this is simply share a link to the show's podcast page at tavernasir.com slash LBC. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review my leadership podcast on your preferred podcast platform. I know some of you have already written reviews lately, so allow me to express my thanks to you for your support and encouragement. And with that, I'm Tavin Nasir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.